0: Today's episode The U.S. Army Against Pancho Villa and Mexico. Hello, and welcome to Military History Inside Out, brought to you by War Scholar and located at warscholar.org. We talk about military history from ancient times to modern and everything in between. I'm Chris Alvarez, and thank you for listening. Don't forget my other two podcasts. On Full Contact Nerd Interviews, I speak with Josh Mallerman author of the horror novels Bird Box and Goblin. At Technology and Space, I speak with Carla Diana about human interactions with smart machines and robots. Thank you for listening. I'm speaking with Jeff Gwyn, author of War on the Border, Via, Pershing, the Texas Rangers, and an American Invasion, to be published May 18th, 2021, by Simon & Schuster. Thank you for speaking with me. You bet. So first, um, how did you get uh, into studying and writing a book on this subject?
1: Well, what I try to do is I try to write books about American history based on iconic events and then bring Mm -hmm. the readers into the context of the whole thing. Mm -hmm. There was an awful lot of talk in the last few years about the uh, U.S.-Mexico border, particularly a border wall and who's coming across and whether they should or not. Mm Mm-hmm. I thought I'd like to take a look at uh, the whole history of the border. And in doing that, I saw that there's a lot of great history that hasn't been mentioned as much as it should have, including basically what amounted to several invasions by both sides uh, right at the beginning of the 20th century. And I wanted to find out more.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay. Have you always been um, into American history since you were young or?
1: Oh, very much. One of the things that bothers me is I won't live long enough to write all the books I want to, but I'm glad I got to write about this one.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I noticed your your book list is, uh, you have a pretty good book list there. Interesting topics that you've hit.
1: Well, that's the thing about history, as I'm sure you know, and and all your your listeners and viewers do. Real history is almost always more fascinating than the made-up stuff. Yeah. And this is fun.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I agree. So um, so then uh, give the the listeners a bit of a background, you know, the date, time, area that we're talking about that you discuss sure. in the book.
1: Uh, the book itself mostly focuses on 1916 when Pancho Villa invaded the United States, crossed the border, attacked a small town in New Mexico near the border with the intention of luring american troops into mexico so that the mexican people would get the idea the americans the yankees are invading our country and possibly overthrow the current mexican government and install Villa Hmm. instead the troops that went down after him were led by general pershing Mm -hmm. known as the punitive expedition and for months and months, America and Mexico teeter on the brink of World War, hmm. while at the same time, Germany is very much hoping there will be an American-Mexican war to keep America occupied and out of World War One. I. I had never really heard about a lot of that mm-hmm. and was amazed at the whole story.
0: Mm-hmm. So does your book follow the chronology of what happened, or is it... Ha- What what do you focus on? The individuals, more strategic, you know, political issues?
1: Well, I think you can't get away from any of that. Mm -hmm. History doesn't happen in a vacuum. If we're going to talk about a battle, if we're going to talk about an expedition that really makes a difference in history, then readers need to understand what led up to that. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, everything that happens in it and an idea of the consequences afterward. Mm-hmm. We are still today, 2021, facing some of the consequences of the things that happened back in 1960. Mm-hmm. And I think if readers understand that, maybe we'll have a better grasp of what's going on right now at the
0: border. Mm-hmm. So what was going on in Mexico at the time? Was there was there violence going on that people... In the u.s expected something like this to happen or was it totally unexpected
1: there was a lot of violence in mexico and mexico had been in an almost constant state state of civil war mm-hmm. for decades americans living on the border were used to raids for mexican bandits just as mexican civilians Living on both sides of the border, expected depredations by a Mexi- by Mexican bandits, and frankly, sometimes from the Texas Rangers. Mm-hmm. It was a volatile area. It was dangerous, and as far back as 1903, mm-hmm. 13 years before the events we mainly talk about, uh, America was already talking about: "We got to build a fence. We got to build a wall mm-hmm. along the border. Keep these people out." And there already had been several attempts to build border walls Hmm. that hadn't worked out. Mm -hmm. But the big difference here is it simply had not occurred to most Americans, and certainly not most of the American military, that Mexican insurgents, we call them terrorists today, Mm -hmm. would ever dare cross the border and really try to murder Americans. Mm-hmm. And so in that way, it came as a complete surprise.
0: So, you know, when I think of this region, I think of a lot of, you know, maybe a few small towns with, you know, basically poor people and then, you know, large ranches or farms along the border. So when you talk about raids, you know, what um were they rustling, you know, stealing cattle or, you know, basically robbing people? What was going on?
1: Well, both sides, Americans and Mexicans like to cross the border and steal the other guy's cattle. Mm -hmm. That was considered fair game economically. Mm -hmm. So that would happen quite a few times. For Tejanos, particularly Texas, living on the border, Mm -hmm. there would be attacks on them, quite often unprovoked, by Texas Rangers, which created a lot of tension. Mm -hmm. The big thing for Americans... The attacks they feared were not over the border in the United States, but attacks on property in Mexico owned and operated by Americans. Uh. 95% of the arable property or grazing property in Mexico was owned at this time by other, by either a few rich Mexican ranchers Mm -hmm. or rich Americans. Hmm. And when Villa, the outlaw, is riding with his band trying to fight the government of Venustiano Carranza, Mm -hmm. who's been recognized by the American government, the American concern is not Carranza. There have been so many Mexican presidents, if one more of them gets knocked off, they don't care. (laughs) Well, that's honestly kind of the way they looked at it, Right. but they cared very much about the property of the rich, politically influential Americans down in Mexico, mm-hmm. and the fact that Villa and the other outlaws would pretty much try to steal all the cattle there they could, steal equipment, uh, blackmail American business people into giving them money, otherwise we'll basically take out your manufacturing plants or whatever. That was considered the real danger. Hmm. And there was great pressure on the American government by rich Americans, get Mexico under control no matter what you do. And this is why two years before VIA's invasion in March 1916, Mm -hmm. Columbus, New Mexico, America invaded Mexico, the port of Veracruz, on the Mexican eastern coast, Mm -hmm. And held that city, that port, against the will of the Mexican government for almost a year. Hmm. So, in a sense, Villa could claim to the Mexican people, no, this isn't provocation. It's retaliation. Right. They did it first. Mm-hmm.
0: So, first, was there any talk among the Americans of annexing any of this property that Americans owned on the Mexican side?
1: Oh, Lord, Yes. Uh, a lot of the big American businessmen mm-hmm. would actually say publicly, "There's no reason we shouldn't take whatever parts of Mexico we want."
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And you have to remember this sort of what even American editorial writers called "ravishment" mm-hmm. of Mexico goes way back. You've had the uh, the war with Mexico, the Treaty of of that war, mm-hmm. which basically took almost a million square miles of Mexico's one point seven million square miles mm. and gave it to America. Yeah, now, America in theory paid for it fifteen million dollars for all that mm. But all the way up to Wyoming, mm-hmm. parts of America had been Mexico, so that's where it starts. Mm-hmm. Then, You get Texas breaking off. Mexico resents that. Mm -hmm. Texas is absorbed into the American Union. Mexico never recognized the treaty Santa Ana. Mm. It struck with the Texicans. And they always left it open. Someday we're going to go take it back. And for a while, they broke off diplomatic relations with the United States. Mm -hmm. Jump it less than 10 years more. Now we got the Gadsden Purchase, more acreage from northern Mexico, the prime mining areas, yeah. the prime grazing areas. Santa Ana, who, by the way, would bounce in and out of office, I think, six times total mm-hmm. before finally being thrown out for good, has spent the entire Mexican treasury, mostly on wild parties, yeah. needs the money. And so the Americans say, fine, for more prime border areas. We'll give you fifteen million dollars. He makes the deal. Huh. Mexico allows the land to be occupied by Americans, and then the American government announces, "You know what? Fifteen million's too much. We're only going to pay you ten million. <laughs> Take it or leave it." As you can imagine, Mexicans are pretty damn resentful. Mm-hmm. And then, 1914, America is very concerned about the current occupant of the Mexican presidential palace, Mexico City, Victoriana Huerta, Mm -hmm. uh, who got there by assassinating his predecessor. Hmm. New government in America, Woodrow Wilson. Wilson's not going to tolerate this. And he says openly, we're going to teach Mexico how to have a good, fair, democratic government and starts trying to pressure Huerta out of office. You kill somebody, to get in office, America is not going to recognize you. Hmm. So immediately, Monroe Doctrine, he announces, because is fighting the rebels, who at the moment are Carranza and, and Villa. Hmm. Look, no European power can sell arms to Mexico. Monroe Doctrine, you're interfering with American affairs. The only people who can sell arms to Mexico, anybody in Mexico. That'd be Americans hmm. finds out that the, a German ship is going to be arriving in Veracruz with a shipment of arms. Mm-hmm. We can't have that. Not only does he have to prove to Huerta to, if we say that can't happen, you can't do it, but mm-hmm. he's also going to make a point to Europe: mm-hmm. don't don't mess with American policy. Yeah, and so we go in nineteen fourteen, and we invade. Veracruz, we take that major port city, we tell the captain of the German ship, hey, guess what? Go back. He shows a bill of lading, and there's a little problem here. Because the Germans legally bought the guns in New York City. (laughs) Technically, they are American guns purchased in America Mm -hmm. that are legally being brought down to Huerta. It's such a screw up <laughs> that William Jennings Bryan, the Secretary of State in Washington, D.C., has to hightail it over to the German embassy and apologize.
0: <laughs> That's, uh...
1: And the guns are simply dropped off at another port and where to get some anyway. But now America has taken Veracruz, occupied it, killed a couple hundred people in the process. Uh. We can very well say, uh-oh, sorry, mistake, mm-hmm. and leave, Right, and we end up occupying for almost 10 months before we leave.
0: I'm speaking with Jeff Gwynn, author of War on the Border. You can find more information about his work on his Facebook page, Jeff Gwyn. If you like this episode of Military History Inside Out so far, please tap the like button and bullseye the subscribe button. If you want more interviews with military historians or to get daily history book suggestions, check out warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com. If you want interviews with writers and creative people or daily book suggestions in sci-fi, fantasy, horror, film history, gaming, and more, check out fullcontactnerd.com and my podcast, Full Contact Nerd Interviews. If you want to hear interviews with space scientists, space historians, and technology experts, or get daily space and science book suggestions, check out technologyandspace.com and my podcast, Technology and Space. All of my social media links are listed at the end of this episode. Now back to the podcast.
1: So all Mm -hmm. this resentment has built up in Mexico. Mm -hmm. You've got very powerful American business leaders telling the White House something has to be done about Mexico. Fix it. Mm -hmm. Woodrow Wilson, the president, has to pick a side. Puerta's run out of the government by Carranza and Villa, Mm -hmm. who immediately start fighting each other. Uh. Carranza wins a few battles. And so in October 1915, the Wilson administration says Carranza's the legal government, we're not having anything to do with Pancho Villa anymore. And this is where Villa gets the great idea. Sucker hmm. the Americans into invading us again. The Mexican people won't stand for it. Yeah, They'll get rid of Carranza. I will be the hero who stands up to the Mexicans. That brings us up to Columbus. That brings us up to the punitive expedition and all hell breaks loose.
0: So was Pancho Villa... You know, he's always portrayed as, you know, this horse-riding bandit type, but was he more political than than the image suggests?
1: Pancho Villa was all image, and that was deliberate. Uh, He was a peasant who had a terrible temper, killed a government official, Mm -hmm. went on the run, and at the perfect time when the revolution is starting, he can go back into the revolutionary forces again. He took the name Pancho Villa because that was the name of the previous famous bandit. That wasn't even his name. Uh. And he has absolutely no political skills. What he's good at is leading soldiers into head on battles, mm-hmm. murdering people when he loses his temper. He had a habit of that. Uh. And an absolute conviction that whoever was president of Mexico at the time was his enemy and the people's enemy. Huh. So he is sort of a Robin Hood figure in Mexico. Right. While the peasants mostly are starving, while the rich people have all the land, all the money, mm-hmm. they see Villa as the only person that's standing up for them. Mm-hmm. And because most of the Mexican people resent America most of all, Villa, who is not a great strategist, but he understands some basic things.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: If he can only get the Americans to charge over the border one more time, this puts Carranza, his enemy who's the, who's the president, in a terrible position. Mm-hmm. Carranza's got to do one of two things. He's got to accept the Americans have done this because he doesn't have the army to fight them, really. Mm-hmm. Or he can try to force the Americans out, which might make the Americans withdraw recognition of his government, mm-hmm. and maybe Villa can sneak in that way.
0: Right. So, so how large? So the raid itself. How? What? what kind of forces did Pancho Villa use to conduct that?
1: If Villa had invaded America, if he tried to go into Columbus with all his forces just a year earlier, mm-hmm. he would have come with over sixty thousand men. But he had lost so much, so many men, in battles with Carranza. Mm-hmm. And by the way, the Germans were advising Carranza. Yeah. They taught him trench warfare, the same thing that would be going on in Europe in a couple of years. Oh, wow. And Via believed in cavalry charges to straight at the enemy. And he would lose a third of his forces at once in losing the battle. Mm. So by the time he's going to come back in and try to pull this off, He's only got about 500 men
0: left. Oh, wow.
1: But you see, he believes the minute he reestablishes himself as Mexico's hero against the Yankees, Mm -hmm. volunteers will just start coming out of everywhere that a lot of government soldiers, federales will desert to join him, you know, Mm -hmm. Mexican pride. Yeah. So he's got 500 men. He's got to pick a place across the American border that has a couple things going. Number one, Villa has no money. You've got to find a place with a bank <laughs> so he can pay his, his soldados mm-hmm. a little bit. you got to find a place where you're going to be able to get some horses and some mules. I mean, his men have only got the horses they're riding and they can barely feed them. Mm-hmm. The animals are in terrible. And finally, you got to have some American soldiers, but not too many. Right. Because V's force isn't large enough to win any kind of a fight against a large U.S. contention. Columbus works at least supposedly for all these reasons. He's got spies on the other side of the border, and Columbus is three miles across the border in New Mexico. Mm -hmm. And In Columbus, there is a small military base, and VIA believes there's only about 50 soldiers in it. Just a small contingent be there at the border crossing so you know you can check patrol a little bit. Mm -hmm. He doesn't realize you've got the 13th Cavalry with about 700 soldiers. Mm -hmm. He doesn't know that until he brings his forces up in in March, Mm-hmm. 1916, pauses a few miles out, gets out his binoculars, and sees all, see all these soldiers working on <laughs> What is this? He tells his subordinates, too many soldiers there. Mm-hmm. We're not going to do this. Let's turn around. But they swear it must be some mistake. Mm-hmm. They've done their due diligence. There's only a couple dozen. Let us go look for you, and we'll do that. Mm-hmm. And they go out, and they come back, and they tell you, we were right. There's not that many soldiers.
0: So they were lying?
1: No, they, I guess, were not what you would call real bright. (laughs) But they've marched. They've nearly killed themselves on the march halfway across northern Mexico. They're Mm -hmm. starving. Their animals are starving. If they try to go back, they may not survive the trip. I mean, they're there. Mm -hmm. Why not take a shot? And so right around midnight on March the ninth, they sneak across the border. There's a fence. People don't realize we've been doing this whole fence thing for a long time. <laughs> uh-huh. And in some areas, they really do have high fences to scale. But in this deserted part of the border, mm-hmm. there's just a couple strands of barbed wire, okay. which they cut. Now, in Columbus... There have been warnings coming for over a week to the commander, hmm. Colonel Herbert J. Slocum, who prided himself on being a direct descendant of Miles Standish and was pissed beyond belief that after his arguably fine service to America overseas in the various wars and in, in the nation itself, even Indian fighting, mm-hmm. that he couldn't rise above the rank of colonel. Hmm. But as you as you know, and I'm sure your viewers do, and in this particular time in American military, it was excruciatingly long to rise up in rank. I mean, there just wasn't that much possibility for promotion. And Slocum's stuck mm-hmm. out in a hellhole in the middle of a godforsaken desert with a bunch of rattlesnakes. Mm-hmm. And he's just remarried a society woman who, what, what is this place? <laughs> and... Who likes him to take her on frequent trips to the big towns, mm-hmm. Deming, 30 miles north, or even El Paso, which is another 40 miles. Uh-huh. For the parties there, Slocum hates it. Yeah. So do most of his men. He starts getting warned a week before the invasion that Vistas have been spotted moving in his direction. hmm And he doesn't believe it. Yeah. Eh. <laughs> he Mexicans. doesn't believe it. <laughs> nah. They're not going to do that. He keeps getting the warnings. Finally, the day before the attack, two different ranch hands on Mexican ranches mm-hmm. below the border, just below the border, ride to Deming to say, we have seen the Eastas. You know, they actually tried to catch us. Mm-hmm. They're down there. And Slocum tells them, I don't worry about it. If they come here, we can handle it. Then he sends a, a contingent of men out to the border that night just to be on the safe side. Mm-hmm. And a couple more, 200 more to a ranch 14 miles to the west. We got it covered. There's about 300 men left at the base. Mm-hmm.
0: What, what's the fort or the base? The fort?
1: The, it's a, it's not a fort. It's, not, it's a bunch of tents and a few buildings. Okay. Let's not think of it as anything too formal. Okay. But they've got a stable, they've got uh, an armory. And Columbus, because it's near the border and there's some trading, has a bank and a mm. couple stores. That, you know. Anyway, so Slocum, on the night of March 8th, the attack's going to come at four in the morning on March night. Having figured he's covered his butt, promptly takes Mrs. Slocum and skips town
2: <laughs> to <up>. a
1: party. <laughs> yeah, there's there's some possibility. Some documents show it might have been uh, a, a polo match in Deming it might have been a party at a ranch about 30 miles away but you've got to remember there's just little tiny dirt roads and the conveyance are some army jeeps that can maybe go 10 miles an hour Mm -hmm. so Slocum's gone all but one of his officers is gone they're either at one of the little with one of the little groups that he'd sent out Mm -hmm. to check or they were gone on leave, or at parties themselves. And at four in the morning, here come the Vistas, almost five hundred of them.
0: Mm-hmm. Now moving slowly, like quietly and slowly, or
1: they move quietly and slowly till they get to a spot called Coots Hill, just outside town. Now they call it Coots Hill. It's about the size of a pimple, if that. Mm-hmm. If there was even one sentry standing on this little hill. You can see for 20 miles in any direction, because it's so flat, but there are no extra guards posted by Slocum on this night. Mm. And so they gather around the base of this tiny hill, and a few hundred yards away is Columbus, New Mexico. Villa divides his forces in half. One half is going to swoop up towards the north to the business district in town. They're going to rob the bank, they're going to rob the store, They're going to do whatever they can do to get away with whatever loot they want. The other half will go into this little army base where there's only going to be about 40 or 50 troops max. Mm -hmm. And they're going to kill all the soldados they can. Mm -hmm. They're going to steal the horses. They're going to steal guns. Then, when their victory is complete, they'll hang around until the news reaches the American forces elsewhere. Mm -hmm. Then they'll retreat into Mexico knowing they'll be pursued. At some mm, point. Right. But they're going into their home country. They can dodge a dart and evade easily. Mm-hmm. They're certain. Yeah. And even as they're doing that, as they go through villages, they can say they're the Americans are invading right behind us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's the plan. Unfortunately, Yeah. there's a lot more soldiers than they expected. Mm-hmm. They get the complete drop on the army. The 13th Cavalry. But heroically, the army fights back. It's four in the morning. There's about 30 or 40 cooks up making breakfast for everybody else. The Vistas are coming in with their guns on their horses. Mm-hmm. The cooks with pots of boiling water, with an axe used for chopping wood, mm-hmm. for a couple baseball bats that they use for intramural games. Actually, hold them off until the soldiers can get some machine gun crews working. huh The fight goes on for about three hours. Much of the business district goes up in flames. Huh. A total of sixteen Americans, eight soldiers, eight civilians die mm-hmm. About eighty the yeistas die hmm. and Vi calls for retreat. And he is pursued by cavalry. Mm -hmm. The major, Major Frank Tompkins, who's leading the pursuit, finds himself wondering, there's only about 60 of us. There's at least 300, maybe 400 of them. Why aren't they stopping to fight? And he actually crosses the border. You're not supposed to do that legally, without Mm -hmm. permission. Mm -hmm. But he's trying to stop them. And Tompkins goes 15 miles deep into Mexico, chasing Villa before the Vistas stop and make a stand, and Tompkins decides we've done all we can do to turn around. Mm-hmm. But by that time, Villa's gotten what he wanted. Yeah. Maybe he lost a lot more men than he expected. Yeah. But A, the Yankees had come. Even if nobody else comes, now he can say they've done it.
2: Yeah.
1: But even more likely, they've burned an American town. They've killed American civilians and soldiers. Mm -hmm. The Americans have got to do something. Yeah. And that sets up the American retaliation, which is the punitive expedition.
0: I'm speaking with Jeff Gwynn, author of War on the Border. You can find more information about his work on his Facebook page, Jeff Gwynn. If you like this episode of Military History Inside Out so far, please tap the like button and bullseye the subscribe button. If you want more interviews with military historians or to get daily history book suggestions, check out warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com. If you want interviews with writers and creative people or daily book suggestions in sci-fi, fantasy, horror, film history, gaming, and more, check out fullcontactnerd.com and my podcast, Full Contact Nerd Interviews. If you want to hear interviews with space scientists, space historians, and technology experts, or get daily space and science book suggestions, check out technologyandspace.com and my podcast, Technology and Space. All of my social media links are listed at the end of this episode. Now back to the podcast. How much of the 13th Cavalry, um, were there any Buffalo Soldiers among them?
1: The 13th Cavalry was not the Buffalo Soldiers. That was the 10th, the 10th Cavalry. right? But the Buffalo Soldiers are part of the punitive expedition, a big part of it. Mm-hmm. And they're involved in a lot of key events. I mean, this is really the last stand of the Buffalo Soldiers. Mm-hmm. A lot, the punitive expedition is a lot of things. Mm-hmm. It's really the end of American cavalry. You're going to have the first mechanized or armored battles that American military will fight. It's going to change the way the American army, the American military fights forever. Mm -hmm. But of course, it all gets off to a terrible start because if in 1960, the Mexican government and the American government can screw each other around and completely fail to be reasonable, they're going to do it. And that's what happens right
0: away. So I want to, I, I don't want to talk too much about the details of the book. I'd rather people pick it up and read read it. This fascinating stuff. Let's turn to the uh, resources you used for, for your research. Sure. Um, what did you use? What archives? Where did you go for your research?
1: There are some archives that are pretty much available to anyone who's interested. And I would urge your viewers, if they read the book and find it interesting to go look through this material themselves. Mm -hmm. A lot of material can be found at the university of Texas at El Paso archives, Mm -hmm. Alpine university, uh, the university in Alpine. And for the life of me, I'm I'm blanking on the name of the school, (laughs) but I'm sure I'll get it in a minute. Mm -hmm. Um, there are a number of fine historians, including Mexican historians, who have written books about part of all this. Mm-hmm. But the biggest cachet of wonderful material I found was at the archives at Fort Bliss in El Paso
2: mm-hmm.
1: that had the army records of the whole punitive expedition right there. Mm-hmm. And even a, a notebook which, by the way, I have by my desk maps of everything the punitive expedition did. Maps uh. of the attack on Columbus, the works. Mm-hmm. These hadn't real. These hadn't been available to the public, but they they shared them with me. Wonderfully generous. The people at Fort Bliss could not have been more professional. Could not have been more generous. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to be able to bring a whole new dimension of coverage to the public. And it's my hope that the materials at Fort Bliss would, will be made available more widely now. Mm-hmm.
0: So, how so? The punitive expedition itself—how how long did it last, um, and where did it? What areas did it cover in Mexico?
1: One of the problems for the punitive expedition was they were so limited, and, and it's a study in military frustration when when the politicians tell you what you can and can't do. Mm-hmm. They were only allowed to go into the northern state of Chihuahua, Mm -hmm. chasing Pancho Villa. Mm -hmm. They couldn't go any farther than that. They were not allowed to directly enter any villages that were occupied by federal forces because the Mexican government did not give permission for the punitive expedition to come in. Mm. As far as the federales were concerned, this was an invasion of Mexico Mm -hmm. by the Americans. So the Americans are not only trying to track down and fight the Vistas, they have to watch out every step of the way and fear attack by the Federales Mm -hmm. at the same time. They go into Mexico in late March. Mm -hmm. They will be there through February of 1917. Mm -hmm. During that time, they will have occasional firefights with different bands of the East is mm-hmm. but never a culminating here's our forces against theirs. Pershing has approximately 4,000 soldiers when he goes down. Mm-hmm. Through reinforcements and because things kept escalating, by the time he'll leave in February of the next year, he's going to have just over 10,000. Mm-hmm. They've got eventually 10,000 horses and mules, uh, about 300 trucks, Mm -hmm. and Pershing and his command staff are are driving passenger cars. They're going into primitive parts of Mexico. Right. There's no paved roads. Mm -hmm. They're having to dig everything out of the dirt and the sand. Mm -hmm. They get hit with winter blizzards that they hadn't expected, torrential rain, deserts with no water and Mexicans, ordinary countrymen who want nothing to do with them, who hate them Mm -hmm. and take every opportunity to lie to them. We don't know where he is. Right. He's not here. Mm -hmm. We heard he's about a hundred miles that way. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's a tremendously frustrating experience for them, even more so because there's two times that the American forces Part of them, small segments are in battles against the federales of Mexico hmm. and uh, don't come out very well in either one, Pershing the Amer- the army they want to fine we have this whole thing with Mexico. let us just take the country. we can do this uh. <laughs> Washington doesn't want that yeah, on the other hand, you've got Germany encouraging Carranza. Fight them. We'll help you. The infamous Zimmerman telegram, Mm -hmm. by the way, of 1917 is all part of this. There's a lot going on. But the main thing is the army is hamstrung, and yet Pershing does a tremendous job of at least breaking up the Villistas, of eliminating most of them. And Villa is badly wounded, not by the Americans, but by some of his own forced conscripts who's shooting when his back is turned. Yeah. Uh. And uh, is basically out of the picture for some time. By the time the Americans are going to leave, mm-hmm. people think, well, he's either dead or he's been, you know, crippled to the point he can't fight. He starts coming back. Mm-hmm. But by this point, America just needs to get the hell out of Mexico. Yeah. They they are pretty much sure we're going to be entering the war in Europe. Right. But in between, there are firefights. There are terrible betrayals. At one point, Pershing tries to use Japanese spies to poison Via,
2: hmm.
1: and is pretty sure they've succeeded. He doesn't mention this to his superiors in Washington, oh. <laughs> and uh, no one is more surprised than Pershing when Via suddenly shows up in the late fall of 1917, raiding in Chihuahua again. Terrible shock to Pershing. And there is an extended military cover-up because America doesn't want the rest of the world to know, hey, you know, we didn't just try to track him down. We tried to assassinate him. Wow. Kind of embarrassing. Yeah. So there are all these things happening, great colorful events, back and forth, back and forth, and through it all, there is always the sense that at any minute, outright war between America and Mexico is going to break out. A war America is eventually going to win. But in the early days, particularly along the US Mexico border, that's where Mexico's got its military strength. How many Americans are gonna die? What's gonna happen to mm-hmm. American border cities? Right. All these things are going on.
0: Did um did Pershing have uh, any artillery and or, or any air you know, any airplanes for reconnaissance or anything?
1: This was gonna be the first time that aeroplanes we're going to be a big part of what America did. Mm-hmm. Now, the eight planes that Pershing got when he went started the expedition weren't mounted with guns or anything, but what they were going to be used for was reconnaissance. Mm-hmm. We'll be able to go out there and look for the enemy and for taking messages back and forth. hmm The problem was the planes were so underpowered and the winds around the mountains in northern Mexico were so great Mm. that most of the planes crashed. Uh. Uh, Some replacement planes were sent, but in Pershing's report at the end of the expedition, he said the planes had not been of any use whatsoever. So the benefit of using the planes so far as the American military was concerned is they discovered the limitations that you have to have more powerful planes and you have to have guns on the planes so they can defend themselves. Yeah. But that wasn't the case with the planes sent with Pershing.
0: Yeah. And what about um, supply lines? Like what you described it makes me wonder how they got food and fuel properly, you know, from the U.S. Or, or did they? Did they live off the land?
1: <laughs> they had to live off the land and that was harder than it sounds because none of the Mexican villages wanted to sell them anything. Uh, Fine, starve you, sons of bitches, was basically the idea. mm -hmm. And it was made worse by the fact that the military command hamstrung Pershing and his commanders to be able to buy anything. Because Mm -hmm. instead of actually giving them American dollars or pesos, Mm -hmm. they gave them military script. (laughs) And if a Mexican villager, let's say 300 miles (laughs) south of the border, Sold the Americans some corn and some beef. Yeah, if he want, he would have to actually go himself all the way up to the nearest American base, which would have taken him maybe a month to get to, mm-hmm. to redeem the script. Yeah, so you get to the point where the Americans have to try to keep a supply line going over hundreds of miles of rugged Mexican desert. Yeah, it didn't work very well, and gasoline shortages were crippling. And yet, they persevere. And finally, in the last few months of the expedition, and this is something that I had no idea about, and Mm -hmm. it just amazed. In Europe, the Germans think that at least if the Americans ever join this war, they have no battle-ready troops. It's going to take them a year just to get troops trained and equipped before they can get over here to fight us. That's Hmm. the idea. Right. Pershing, on this punitive expedition sees how few of his soldiers are really Mm combat-ready. And so in the last few months of the expedition, where following Washington's orders, Pershing must keep all his troops consolidated into one base. They can't get off because it might upset the Mexicans. Mm -hmm. What he does is he puts them through intense battle training. That's how he uses the time. Mm -hmm. All kinds of military maneuvers, Everything from knowing how to care for your weapons to being able to fight as units or separately. Mm-hmm. And so when America finally does enter World War I yeah. in 1917, instead of a year, within three months, Pershing is commanding the forces, the American forces in Europe. And at the forefront of those forces are the same men who basically untrained and not knowing what they were doing left to go into Mexico on the punitive expedition. They have been taught, they're ready, they're good fighters. Mm-hmm. And this helps turn the tide in World War One.
0: Mm-hmm. Did um Was the Navy or Marine Corps at all involved in Pershing's expedition? Or was it all Army?
1: It was all Army. Mm-hmm. Now, in Veracruz, the Navy and the Marines were involved. Mm-hmm. But Pershing got various units of the cavalry, a couple infantry units, some artillery though, bringing the, dragging the big guns through the desert proved virtually impossible. Hmm. So it was in fact all army, but this was the first time that the army gradually shifted. Chasing on horseback was one thing, but if you can get a car with enough fuel and you can have your sappers build a road hmm. that goes far enough. Yeah. In a couple hours, you can go farther in a few cars than the enemy can go on their horses in two or three days. Right. So that changed a lot of the American military. By the end of the punitive expedition, Mm -hmm. uh, they weren't buying horses anymore, the Army. They were trying to get trucks manufactured.
0: Yeah, yeah. So um, when doing your research... Actually, did you go to any of the spots um, that you discuss in the book? Were you able to visit any of it?
1: Oh, yeah. Uh, Some of it legally and some less so. We won't go into too much detail here. Okay. 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 Uh, uh, I went down to Columbus Mm -hmm. and walked all the areas, not only of the battle, but then the pursuit Mm -hmm. following the battle. The culminating battle is at Nogales, really. Hmm. even though the punitive expedition was gone by then but there there was a battle there hmm. and i did i did cross the border and then i decided to see if i could cross the border in a couple places that mexican raiders had uh. which are still very wild and unguarded oh wow i wasn't sure it was legal but how else can i describe what it was like if i if i don't try to do it
0: yeah this journalist so, journalistic license
1: look <laughs> one of the great modern American historians, Stephen Ambrose, who I think really helped a wide American audience appreciate the sacrifices of the military, mm-hmm. said, you should never write about a battle without walking the ground yourself. Mm-hmm. So you can actually say it's this far. If you stand here, you can see this far. So I, I, was, I thought that was really important and I wanted to do that. And again, mm-hmm. I can't thank the archivists at Fort Bliss Mm -hmm. the maps and the materials they gave me really helped offer an understanding of the logistics. And if readers don't understand what's involved there, how can they possibly get the idea Mm -hmm. of the action that's happening? So again, people like me depend on archives Mm -hmm. and God bless the people who keep them and maintain them and make them available to us.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's also not cheap it requires money to keep those going and people aren't paying a whole lot for it.
1: Well, that's one reason I hope always with my books and I try to make my note sections very specific Mm -hmm. and the names of the organizations who make their materials available to me. Mm -hmm. And I always urge readers, if you're interested, go see these things for yourselves. And when you do, do what I do, make a contribution, Mm -hmm. say, please use this money for whatever purposes will help your organization.
0: Yeah, 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 um, yeah. It's it's expensive to maintain those old crumbling documents, you know, and and treat them carefully, and you know, humidity issues and and all that, and
1: and yet when it's done right, it's a window. Mm-hmm. It's wonderful for any uh, any of your viewers mm-hmm. who say, you know, I'd like to write a book someday about history military history Mm -hmm. do it it really is a thrill it's hard work yeah sometimes it gets tedious but the excitement when you're in archives and you can see something and all of a sudden you get it Mm -hmm. this shows how this happened yeah it's wonderful
0: oh yeah oh yeah it's really cool yeah i agree um so considering that obviously there are a lot of gaps in history, was there a particular question in this research that you had the most difficulty trying to get an answer to and, and you either did get an answer or you're still, you'd still like to know what happened.
1: The thing I don't understand is why we have not yet learned from the history of the border. Hmm. Why we keep making the same mistakes over and over again. Hmm. The events in 1916, 1917, the punitive expedition pointed out the frustrations on the Mexican side and the American side. The problems that we've got about border crossings, about tariffs, about who should be allowed to get into America, who should be kept out. Mm-hmm. All these things have been problems now for since 1903, I think I told you, they first tried to build a border fence. Mm-hmm. And it didn't work. Why didn't it work? Because in a lot of the border, if you try to put up a fence, it's going to fall down. Mm-hmm. And you, there's so much of the border and it's so hard to get to parts of it mm-hmm. that you can't patrol every foot. There's always going to be areas people can get through. Mm-hmm. And yet, look, today we're still saying we're going to build great, big, beautiful walls. We're going to show them. When do we ever mention, hey, wait a minute, we tried it over a century ago. It didn't work then. Mm-hmm. We don't learn. And that was the frustration for me on this project. Mexicans have a lot to resent about Americans. Americans have things to resent about Mexico and Mexico. Mm-hmm. We're never going to work things out and actually have a neighbor where we can coexist in peace and in harmony unless we finally say, okay, this, this, this these, these are things that have been happening for decades, for centuries. Mm-hmm. Let's fix them, and we do not do that. Mm-hmm.
0: So, my next question—it it sounds like maybe you already answered it—but um, what did what had the mo- what had the most emotional impact on you in this research, either positively or negatively? Was it this question, or or maybe something else?
1: When I was down on the border, mm-hmm. I tried very hard to talk to Americans and Mexicans. Mm-hmm. It bothered me then; it still bothers me. I guess it's always going to bother me that very few on either side of the border was willing to understand the problems and the frustration of people on the other side. Hmm. The anger is that deep. Mm -hmm. And how to fix that, I'm not sure, except both sides need to acknowledge the mistakes that each side has made. Not what the other guy did to you, but what we could have done better, how we could have been more fair to our our neighboring country and our neighbors who live there. Mm
0: -hmm. And it's interesting that You know, there's not a clear, sharp line between the two groups. Like you say, you know, Americans own property and live on the Mexican side, and then you have Mexicans living and working and owning property on the American side. You know, and it's like everything is mingled, and yet there's all this stress.
1: Well, I can give you a great example of that. Uh, I spent a lot of time, obviously, in Columbus, New Mexico, And then right across the border is Palomas, Mm -hmm. Mexico. And I remember talking to one very elderly Anglo resident of Columbus, Mm -hmm. and he was just unloading on how he can't stand the idea that we're supposed to trust Mexicans now after everything they've done to us and the American uh, state park. In Columbus is now called Pancho Villa State Park. And he thinks that's just a terrible betrayal of American values.
0: It's gotta be. And,
1: uh, (laughs) you know, he went on and on for some time. And, you know, I was taking my notes and then I said, well, look, it's almost lunchtime. Can Mm -hmm. I, can I buy you lunch someplace? He said, no, I gotta go to the dentist. And I said, oh, is there a dentist in, you know, in town in Columbus? Columbus is still not a big, fancy place. Mm -hmm. Or do you have to go 30 miles north to Deming? He said, oh, no. I just cross over. There's a great Mexican dent, dentist in Palomas, and he's cheaper than the American, so I just go there. <laughs> and he didn't see any contradiction.
0: Hmm. Interesting. Um, that actually is so you, so something, oh, so does the book, is the book just a history of the this period, or do you go into more modern issues at, in some parts of the book?
1: Well, we go back all the way in the book to the original struggle for Mexican independence and America's Mm -hmm. first official contact with Mexico after it became a republic. Mm -hmm. And we go all the way up to today. And the crises there and uh, the civilian militia groups on the border. Again, the main story is what happens in 1916 and 1970. Mm -hmm. But I also, I think it's important for readers to understand history has its implications on the present mm-hmm. as well as the past. And the things that happened then are still the same issues that face us today. Maybe the book will help clarify that.
0: During when the expedition was going on, was there on the American side of the border, were, were there reprisals against Mexicans in America? Like, did it spike up as far as attacks and, and that sort of thing? It,
1: it's in horrible ways.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that, frankly, is, is part of the book, too. Mm-hmm. I mean, even at Columbus to this day, um uh, people grudgingly admit that directly after the attack on Columbus, while the punitive expedition has just left into Mexico mm-hmm. uh some of the Anglo civilians in the area hunted down Mexicans living on the American side of the border and killed them.
0: Hmm. lynch mobs, yep, hm, yeah, I guess I'm not surprised it's horrible, but yeah. Um, there
1: were depredations on both sides.
0: Yeah. Um. So you talked a lot about your goals uh, of the book. Um. Is there anything else that you'd like the book to do apart from what you've mentioned already? Anything additional?
1: Well, it seems to me that a lot of people think a book about history has to be kind of dry. Mm-hmm. Uh, David Halberstam, who I think was one of the greatest nonfiction writers anywhere. hmm once told me that too many history books are like the Powder River. They're a mile wide and they're an inch deep. (laughs) That all they do is list so-and-so did this in this year, and then so-and-so did that next year. Mm -hmm. There's a reason your viewers probably have not kept their high school history books to read over and over again (laughs) all these years. Uh, I hope War on the Border and books about important history by other people are written in a way that will engage readers you're not reading this just to memorize facts hopefully you're reading it to feel things to understand things i think that's what most of us try to do sometimes we succeed sometimes we don't but the reader and the reader's reaction really is important Mm -hmm.
0: yeah did you have any difficulty getting the book finished or published
1: no uh I'm very fortunate. Uh, Simon & Schuster, my publisher, is is one of the great nonfiction publishing houses. Mm -hmm. I have an amazing editor there who supports the books that I want to write. And I explained to them why I wanted to write this particular book. Uh, I've written about a lot of other things that are better known, from the gunfight at the O.K. Corral, which Mm -hmm. wasn't a gunfight and didn't happen at the O.K. Corral, but what the heck, (laughs) Uh, Jonestown. Mm -hmm. Uh, the vagabonds when Henry Ford and Thomas Edison decided to start taking car trips around the country. But I, it just seemed to me with all the talk about the border and the wall and the animosity on both sides that we're having today, Mm -hmm. I wanted to understand better how we got to that point and why. And I thought if I had that curiosity and if there were things I didn't know I should, that maybe a lot of readers would, would be in the same position.
0: I agree. Yeah. Does, um, does Simon and Schuster, you know how uh, university presses usually have a book reviewed by, you know, academic experts mm-hmm. in the field. D- does Simon and Schuster do that with their nonfiction? H- how do they approach that? Fact <laughs> checking and all that.
1: Let me tell you this. Uh, for all the folks that want to write a book someday. Mm-hmm. And I hope you do. Uh-huh. You want to have a publisher that wants every fact checked, Mm -hmm. that it's not opinion, that there's documentation. And Simon & Schuster has some of the finest copy editors it's ever been my privilege to work with. You know, I'm about 160 now. This is my 24th book. (sighs) As we say in Texas, it's not my first rodeo. Right. And it's my eighth book with Simon and Schuster, and I've never, ever been published by anybody that wants to make absolutely certain that everything in there is factual. And I would urge any readers of my books, Mm -hmm. read the chapter notes section, Mm -hmm. and you're going to see that everything I've got in there, I'll tell you exactly where I got it. Mm -hmm. And that's important. We've seen cases, you know this, all all of us who love to read history know this, where you read a book and it sounds great, and then all of a sudden there's some big scandal Hmm. that somebody made something up Hmm. or exaggerated something. Um, Not going to happen with the fact checkers I've had to work with, I'll I'll tell you. Also, when I'm doing my work, the people I interview for my books, I try to make sure they are folks that really have a good, solid background in what they're saying, that we're not getting mythology, that we're talking mm-hmm. to people who've really studied the facts. Mm-hmm. So, again, uh, I, I always kind of enjoy it when, you know, a reader says, now, yeah, where would you find that out? Mm-hmm. I say, well, if you'll turn to the notes on chapter seven, you know, you can see it right there. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's an obligation. Mm-hmm. For historians, frankly, I mean, we've got so much going on with charges of fake news, this and you know fake news that mm-hmm. fine, let's make sure your readers know what you've got here are facts you may not like all the facts right <laughs> You may not agree with some interpretations mm-hmm. of these facts, but on the other hand, please feel free follow up, check every one of them to make sure it's all true
0: mm-hmm. yeah. One of the things that, um, one of the sad aspects of this, though, is that, you know, if a book has to be cut down to a certain length, certain fact, or certain interesting things have to be cut out, you know, and left on the the, cu- the cutting room floor, you know, and it's those little facts, I wonder, you know, when are we ever going to learn those?
1: <laughs> well, you know, there's two ways that can happen. Mm-hmm. The first is if your book is so fabulously successful The publisher wants to put out an expanded edition. Yeah, that happens about once every three million
2: books.
1: (laughs) And the other half is what I try to do. Mm -hmm. Every time I finish a book, I will end up, because it takes two or three years, Mm -hmm. with uh, my house is half filled with boxes of file folders, with copies of documents, with all my interview notes and everything else. Mm -hmm. And when I finish a book, I always give all my materials to one of the archive groups that help me Mm -hmm. so that if anybody else ever wants to write a book on the subject, they can have access to absolutely everything I have. And it just seems to me that's the way we can make sure that if things get cut out of your book Mm -hmm. that are still of great interest, if somebody else wants to write on the same subject, they'll take a look at what you've got and go, hey, wait a minute, I, I think this should fit in. Wow. And it'll still have a chance to to get there. But all my material always is going to be shared. I mean, we're all in this together. There's no definitive work in nonfiction. Right. Every one of us is just trying to get one more puzzle piece. So anybody out there who's thinking, well, that guy missed a whole bunch of great stuff on the war on the border. Please find the things that I missed. Yeah. And you're welcome to have access to everything I have, Mm -hmm. if that'll help.
0: Yeah, and like you say, just circling back how interesting nonfiction is, there's so many little details and angles and, and whatnot to every story that that it seems like you could go forever, even on a story that's been done over and over. There's still more stuff to learn.
1: For instance, Pancho V has sold the film rights of his revolution to an American film production company. <laughs> who brought film crews down to a b- couple battles and discovered that, wait a minute, nobody's staying in camera range. What's the matter with you people? Fight in front of the cameras. And so people today are what you know, they'll say, well, oh, you know, there's actually film footage of Pancho Villa fighting this battle or this battle, and what they're actually seeing after the battle, some of these men dressed up in the other side's uniform and they play acted in front of the camera again. I thought that was fabulous. I think there could be a whole book on this film outfit trying to make a movie. Yeah, you know, of, of the great battles of the Mexican Revolution. Write the book, somebody. I'll buy it.
0: <laughs> like I say, yeah. There's always some other little story to, that that's going to pop up that you can learn about. Wow. Okay. Um, what's your next or your current writing project?
1: Well, uh, I have written quite a bit about demagogues. Mm and demagogues in America. Mm -hmm. And they've included Charles Manson and Jim Jones. Mm -hmm. And my new project is I've decided I need to look at sort of the third great religious demagogue in modern American history. And that's David Koresh, Mm -hmm. leader of the Branch Davidians. We've had plenty of stories and books about what happened in Waco, Mm -hmm. but we've never had a book that really took the story. How did we get there Mm -hmm. in the first place? Right. So I've just started that book, and I am going to be going down a lot of nooks and crannies of different things, Mm -hmm. and that'll take another year and a half or two years.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I'd be a little intimidated trying to interview some of the individuals maybe involved. If I don't know how many survivors.
1: There were, well, there were some, but I'll tell you this. Uh, I actually interviewed some of the members of the Manson family who are still doing life with the Tate Lafayette Converters. Wow. And if I can sit with them describing in great gory detail, exactly what happened.
0: Huh. Wow.
1: Yeah. You, you know, like I said, uh, sometimes it's less enjoyable, but it's never anything less than interesting. Mm-hmm.
0: Have you done any work that involved um, hard, hard discussions with people? or yep just
1: about every book Uh,
0: okay but i mean go ahead before that before you became a writer did you do anything else that that had
1: well you know for for about 200 years i was an investigative journalist Uh, okay and and that was that was great training yeah and you learn you don't try to interrogate people and you know say how the hell did you do this terrible thing (laughs) but you say i want to understand can you help me understand why this happened? Yeah. And and people talk.
0: Yeah. Fascinating. Okay. Um, is there any place online, uh, website, social media, where people can follow any updates on your work or your thoughts?
1: Well, I am absolutely inept at social media. I'm sorry. It's, <laughs> it's just a fact. Doing this Zoom yeah. interview with you uh, sort of stretched my ability <laughs> to the utmost Uh, I'm I'm on Facebook because my publisher forces me to be Mm -hmm. and if anybody wants any readers want to send me queries or anything on Facebook I check it once a day and I always respond to readers Mm -hmm. right away I I owe you that and I I, I appreciate you so all so much Mm -hmm. in terms of a website blogging and things like that folks I'm sorry I just hope you (laughs) read the books
0: so we're on Facebook what's the Facebook page
1: just Jeff
0: Gwynn. Okay. And that's, they'll
1: find me if they
0: want to. Okay. And I'll spell that quickly. J E F F and then G U I N N Jeff Gwynn. Yep. And I will say, I find that I've, I've found that Twitter for writers and authors, Twitter is a really good, um, it's good for them to have accounts there. That's just something. My thumbs
1: I've, don't, my thumbs don't work <laughs> nimbly enough.
0: <laughs> got it. Got it. Okay. Um, all right. That's all the questions I have. Do you have any final thoughts or words?
1: I want to tell you not only how much I appreciate you for this kind of program. Mm. I mean, people like you are the reasons writers like me get to talk about our books. Yeah. But I really want to thank your viewers. Mm -hmm. I mean, because people want to read books, I've been able to spend this long portion of my career doing things I love. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I owe that to the readers. So for all of you, even if you don't read my books, if you just read books about history, thank you.
0: Yeah. And thank you. I, I appreciate you taking the time to speak with me and, and my listeners and viewers. It's been fun. Thank you. Thank you. In the next episode, I speak with Ted N. Easterling, who's written about U.S. Marine Corps combined action platoons in the Vietnam War. Bullseye the subscribe button to catch that episode. Thank you for listening to Military History Inside Out. If you want more interviews with military historians or daily history book suggestions, Check out Warscholar.org and follow me at Warscholar on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter at Chris Alvarez Warscholar on Instagram and my podcast Military History Inside Out. If you want interviews with writers and creative people or daily fiction suggestions including sci-fi, fantasy, horror, film history, gaming, and more, sign up for my newsletter at fullcontactnerd.com. And follow me on Chris Alvarez Full Contact Nerd on YouTube, Chris Alvarez FCN on Facebook and Twitter, Chris Alvarez Sci-Fi on Instagram, and my podcast Full Contact Nerd Interviews. If you want interviews with space scientists, space historians, and technology experts, or daily space and science book suggestions, check out technologyandspace.com. And follow me at Spacewalks Money Talks on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, Spacewalks MT on Twitter, and my podcast, Technology and Space. Thanks for listening, and I hope to see you again soon.